I'm going to be reading from the book of Ruth this morning. Ruth chapter 1, Naomi widowed. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried." May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi and Ruth return. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
And then now in chapter 4, starting in verse 13, Ruth and Boaz marry. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the, the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to, to Naomi. <clears throat> they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amimadad, and Abimadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. May the Father, Son, and Spirit, that merciful God, be honored today. We give thanks for Pastor Gerald, who is faithfully shepherding us. And also today, I give thanks for our music and worship and AV team and ministry under the kind leadership of our own brother, Chris Hauser. And to all of the elders and members and friends and those of you joining us via streaming, good morning. We're so glad to be able to gather in this way as God's people to sing and to confess together and to affirm our belief. Let us now turn to the word of God and ask God to speak to us from heaven. Let's pray. Father, would you reveal the glory of Christ to us? Thank you that your presence has been among us as we have sung and as we have prayed and already begun to gather. Bless Dan and Aaron Evans and their ministry. Thank you for their service to our service men and women. Thank you for the grace in allowing us to partner with them. Bless that they would see scores upon scores built up in you, and many cry out to you for salvation. Magnify Christ in Oak Park, in Chicagoland, and around the world on this day. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, take courage the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings upon your head. 
The familiar lines of the 1773 hymn by William Cooper intend to comment on what scripture seems to reveal about the working of the providence of God in our darkest life experiences. Somewhere in minds known only to the Almighty, he forges out designs of his will that bring gloomy clouds upon us. Ominous as the clouds are to the sight of his saints, the torrential rains they bring will be floods of mercy showering upon us. How both can be true is but the mystery of God and his wonders. We moderns have the benefit of equipping the first line as a common adage in order to gain a sense of comfort when unforeseen coincidences occur. For example, you wanted to work from home, but telecommuting was not an option for your job. Then the coronavirus hit, and all you can do is work from home. God moves in a mysterious way, we say. Our inability to gather in our building and a kickback on our energy bill cost allows for ample time and budget for us to make needed upgrades to our sanctuary and broader church campus. God moves in a mysterious way. Your city's repair of the street in front of your neighbor's home gets you and the whole block a new and much-needed sidewalk and repairs to your easement at no cost to you or to your neighbors. Again, God moves in a mysterious way. Who knew the city's error in street repairs, errors that clogged traffic on your block for weeks, would make a beautification project to last you for years to come. Yay to the mysterious, wondrous working ways of God. But what happens when the outcome is different? For example, you want to excel at your job or school, the coronavirus hits, and now you have to become worker, homeschooler, circus entertainer, and sharer of bandwidth with spouses, children, and parents around you around the clock with no end in sight. If the resurgence in coronavirus cases in Illinois and Chicago means your school district will go to online learning only, Will we still drop the God moves in a mysterious way in this space? If a choice to pursue graduate studies delays or almost nixes your opportunity for marriage or doesn't yield the job satisfaction a graduate education promised, do you break the in case of emergency glass and grab the God moves in a mysterious way extinguisher? Where do we stamp the concept behind the adage when we cannot get near our loved ones in a nursing home during a quarantine, when your role as first responders continues without optimal PPEs, when your business or job is lost during a pandemic or destroyed by riots, when our insurance costs and discretionary incomes make dramatically bad turns in the aftermath of an election cycle? or even when social distancing reveals to you that you actually have very few actual 
friends. Bringing together the working of a good and loving God, tragedy and pain, and our deepest unfulfilled longings and unanswered questions is not a journey for the faint-hearted. Yet it is a journey we must take if we are to love God as he is and to enter into our neighbor's pain and into their enigmatic despairs in their and ours, why like this God, moments and seasons. Enter Naomi. If ever there was a person who stepped into this tension with both feet, it is the ancient Israelite wife of Elimelech. Elimelech and Naomi are like you and I. A famine of pandemic proportions hits Judah, for that's the only kind of famine there is, and they just want food for their family. Somehow, they decide that they can no longer remain sitting ducks in a starvation movie and make a choice for their family to move to Moab. Now, we don't know if this move came because Elimelech made a choice for the family, or if Naomi pushed for the family to be practical, or if there was a joint decision to go to Moab. But I'm trying to imagine this conversation. Nay, you know that Moab introduced idolatry and immorality wholesale to Israel. We can't go there. But Eli, what else can we do? My boys are going to starve. Or, Eli, a Moabite can't even enter the assembly of the Lord according to the law of Moses. Have you forgotten what they did to us in the Balaam incident? But nay, I don't have any other way to give this family some food if we stay here while the famine shuts down everything. See? They're just like us. Going to Moab is no small choice. Literarily, the writer tips us to this immediately by saying, in the days the judges ruled. That was a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes rather than in the eyes of the Lord, and relative morality was the rule of the day. We are shocked that a man whose name means my God is king with a wife who is named Pleasant would go to a people that should be devoted to destruction based on the harem commands of God that Pastor Gerald explained to us last week. Yet we gain a little sympathy for them when we realize that they have endured this famine for a very long time. For shortly after the birth of their sons, their sons are given the name Sickness, Malhan, and Wasting Chilion. The boys must be at least preteens by the time of the sojourn to Moab, for they live in Moab only a decade, and during that time the boys become old enough to marry. They have been sick and wasting for a long time. It looks like Elimelech and Naomi had been trying to endure and wait on the Lord, but they cannot see signs of the Lord showing up in their famine life. You have to assume that things start out well in Moab for this family, that they find work, food, and shelter 
for they end up settling in Moab. Then the first tragedy strikes. Elimelech, the primary breadwinner, dies. They will still make it, however, because there are two sons who can work and take care of mom, the widow. The boys each marry women from Moab, and things seem to be going good with the Moabites, whose names mean fawn and friend. Then, with something worse than a setup in a Dickens or Austin classic, both sons are ripped from Naomi's life. The writer emphasizes that Naomi is left without her sons or a husband so that we feel the sense of desperation and gloom that hangs over Naomi's life. Naomi, however, hearing that the Lord has visited his people, makes a turn from Moab back to Bethlehem. That phrase, visited his people, simply means that the famine is over. There are crops growing and food is available. Naomi knows that the Lord is the one who sends rain for crops to grow. She needs to go back for there may be hope for her abject despair in Bethlehem where the Lord is working. But what about Naomi's two Moabite daughters-in-law? Truthfully, they could make life much harder for Naomi, for one, they would be additional mouths to feed. Two, they could bring their Moabite idolatry with them. And three, immediately people will question Naomi's return with Moabites and might choose not to help her as long as the Moabites are with her. They might not want to spend their Israelite resources on Moabites when there are covenantal mouths to feed. No problem. Just jettison the girls. Make them stay behind. They have a mother to whom they can return. They will not wait for Naomi to have more sons anyway, and there is no prospect of Naomi marrying again. They have been kind to Naomi in her widowhood, so Naomi wishes the Lord's kindness, the Lord's chesed, the Lord's mercy upon them in return. There is no hope in returning with Naomi because, says Naomi, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Wait a minute, Naomi. How dare you see your present situation as the working of the Almighty? It is one thing for you to see the Lord's visitation in the return of crops to the land, for this is within the Mosaic Code in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It is quite fine for you to call upon the Lord's mercy to be upon two Moabites who showed kindness to a widow in Israel because the Abrahamic covenant calls for blessing upon those who bless the members of Israel. But now you are attributing your messed up life to the direct rule of the I am? Careful, pleasant one. It sounds like you are about to write lines to a very strange hymn. Naomi's attribution does not make assessing our own lives easy. 
Your marriage to the love of your life came crashing down like a house of cards. Gone is the Cinderella happily ever after story for which you longed. That was not supposed to happen to you because you were the upright guy, the faithful one, the good girl, and you made every sacrifice of your whole life for the other person. Or you are the Hallmark card parents. You only want your children to love Jesus, but there is one atheist or agnostic among the adult siblings. Most, if not all of your offspring, have all the material success any parent could hope for in their children, but that one child is so far from how you raised him or her. This also influences your relationship to them, how they are raising your grandchildren, and what you have to do when all of the family is gathered. You were not supposed to have this dysfunctional dynamic. Naomi looks at something almost as bad as it can get in this life and says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She sees her life as the blueprint of God. She holds out for all of us to evaluate and conclude that what we are looking at in our own lives, when they are like hers, is a God who is taking his hand, the power of his rule, and is saying, you want to find a satisfied life and do it in Moab, but I am putting a stop to it, even using three tremendous tragedies and a really bleak outlook to do so. Kissy, kissy, hug, hug, tearful goodbyes are said so that Naomi can walk with despair back to Bethlehem by herself. For her chances of survival seem to be better this way. While Orpah takes the golden parachute, Ruth will not have it. Forsaking Moab's gods, Ruth has become a proselyte to Israel and committed to the well-being of her mother-in-law. I will go where you go, lodge where you lodge, even if in homeless places. Israel, not Moab, is now my people. Your God, the Lord, is now my God. And thus, the Abrahamic promise for all nations breaks upon Ruth and Naomi's heads. What can Naomi do? She has been silenced by the determined devotion of Ruth. How could the Almighty send her back to Bethlehem with a Moabite mouth to feed? Naomi has much more theological and spiritual evaluation of the situation to give. The excited throng remembers the Naomi who left Bethlehem with husband and sons and now stares upon her returning with only a Moabitess companion. While they remember the pleasant woman who once resided among them, Naomi informs them that a very different woman is returning. The pleasant woman, you remember, is no more. I am bitter. I am not happy, I am not glad, I am not joyful, and I am not going to cover up my hurt. Mara, meaning bitterness, is my new name. That's how you will address me. And I want everyone to know that I am bitter, and here's why. The Lord 
has dealt bitterly with me, testified against me, and brought calamity upon me. I went out full with two husbands, with a husband and two sons, excuse me, and hope of a better life in Moab. I am returning with no husband, with no sons, and with a Moabitess daughter-in-law. You do the math. I am empty. The first term, dealt bitterly, means to make bitter. That is, El Shaddai, the Almighty, God, the sovereign king, actively has made Naomi's life bitter. Testified against me uses courtroom language to picture the Lord standing against Naomi in court saying, Naomi, here is the judgment I make down upon you. Calamity is a familiar term that we see hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Job uses it when he says, shall we accept good from God and not evil or calamity? Job 2.10. Jeremiah uses it twice when the Lord says, for behold, I begin to work disaster or calamity at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah 25, 29. And again, when the Lord says, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, calamity, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 28. Amos uses this same term when the Lord says, is the trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster, calamity, come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Amos 3, 6. Naomi sees the Lord actively bringing about the deaths of her husband and sons, making her a widow, and leaving her with the burden of a Moabitess companion, all as the Lord's making of a judgment against her choice to go to Moab. Very quickly, allow me to insert that there is not a linear correspondence between all suffering and tragedy and your personal sin. We cannot label all tragedy as judgment. That is a very American thought, that we, America, should be judged for our sins. Oh, the coronavirus is judgment for our sins. We're such a wicked nation, so the thinking goes. Well, that's a really bad perception of America as some sort of theocratic nation that has vassal status with God, her suzerain. Or it is a really bad transference of God's judgment of political nations during the Old Covenant age to some sort of judgment of political nations in the present age, even though believers reside throughout the nations in this age very differently than Israel, a political nation, dwelt among the Gentile nations as God's son. America is not Israel. Nor are we another political nation given wholesale to worshiping gods that are not gods. There are believers in the United States of America. 
So to impose the coronavirus as judgment for moral lacks is a huge assumption with many problems, but it is American to attempt to make such correspondences as if we are God's city on a hill. Your tragedy might not be a judgment for sin or sins. It could be, but you don't know especially if you are living before the Lord in earnest efforts of grace to please him. This is part of the mystery in which we now live. It is part of the mystery of God's love for Naomi and for each one of us. In order to keep myself from going off the rails in this sermon, I asked myself along the way, if George Floyd's mother were sitting in front of you in the pew, would you still preach this sermon? Because this passage and this message have significant implications toward the injustice and in the death of George Floyd and all of his mother's pains. This sermon has implications for the death of my oldest son, Eric Jr., who would have been 25 years old 11 days from now had he lived and had I had days to throw him in the air, play ball with him, watch him graduate from high school and get married and have children of his own. Would I say to George Floyd's mother, this is part of the mystery of God's love for us? The Lord loves without thought of our actions. God chooses from all eternity to set his love on us. This love never changes and never ends. It is the work of a totally good and absolutely holy God. So goodness always comes to us as part of the package of love. When you and I hear the story of Jesus' death on the cross to satisfy his wrath against sins we have done, and when we hear of his resurrection from the dead that offers life after death and power over sin to those who believe, and then you turn from living life your own way apart from God to trusting Jesus and living for God, then you begin to experience the love that God has set upon you since eternity past. A good Holy and loving God like this is not in the business of glibly using family members as pawns in a game to get us to know him better. He is in the business of judging people, for that is his prerogative. He rules over all death. It is we who expect and maybe even demand to die in peace at an old age and never to die from tragedy or to bury the young. It is we who are like Orival in C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, who screams at the council, she's mine, you had no right to take her from me. But not taking and an absence of tragedy are not promised in a fallen world. Only death or rapture for some is promised because of our sins. So never is the Almighty being unfair toward us in tragedy. It might feel unfair, but it is not unfairness. 
Changing the terms by saying he, God, allows it does not help. It worsens every tragic dilemma. Everyone wants a God sovereign enough to prevent pain. But when pain occurs, we don't want him to be so sovereign that he inflicts the pain, even if through secondary means of human evil. But if the Lord is actually in glory, looking the other way while we are writhing in pain, then he is ignorant of things going on in his universe or is intentionally ignoring them or is not acting because he is powerless to do anything. That means we are left at the whims of Satan, the forces of creation and evil people and the he allowed it God can't help us. No, we want the God of Scripture. We want the God who caused the Chaldeans to come against Judah and accomplish all that Deuteronomy 28 promised, including women starving so much that they were eating their own children and the afterbirth. Go read Habakkuk and Deuteronomy 28. That God held the Chaldeans accountable for the evil inflicted on Judah without doing anything evil himself. God never does evil because he cannot, but he can have mysterious designs that intentionally use the evil of others to accomplish his mysterious good and holy will. We want that God. We want the God who took the life of my Eric Jr. through the secondary means of the fallen creation and our fallen states that caused a lethal birth defect. And not simply so that Pam and I would know him more deeply, but that is a consequence intended. That God remains worthy of our praise and of our undying love toward him. Everyone cannot accept this God. Everyone cannot embrace Job's God, who is Jesus' God, the one who was pleased to bruise Jesus, Isaiah 53.10 tells us. But I pray that you will love this God all the more, for only this God can give grace upon grace. Naomi misses all that God is doing in this scene. Naomi actually is the recipient of unrecognized mercy when the Almighty testifies against her. The Lord returns Naomi to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, the best possible time that she could find provision for herself and Ruth. While Naomi thinks that she went out full, she actually was leaving Bethlehem spiritually empty because she thought her hope was in Moab rather than in the Lord's abilities to sustain her through a famine. Now she thinks she is coming back empty, but the Lord has put her in a position where she now has hope in him alone. Although great tragedy has struck her in the human realm, she is in a far better position now that her soul is following the Lord. In her tragedy, she is coming back full. The book of Ruth is trying to show us that the Lord striking down with tragedy and the giving of mercy 
are in fact the same thing in the lives of his believers. It is not that tragedy strikes and then the Lord jumps up to offer mercy to cover it. It is that the sending of the tragedy from a good God is the sending of mercy mysteriously but certainly. It is that mercy is the hand in the glove of tragedy. Mercy is the head on the coin of which tragedy is the tail. Mercy is the two parts of H and the one part of O, the hydrogen and the oxygen in the tragedy of your waters of your life. It is the mass and the square of the speed of life in all tragic energy in your life. Mercy cubed is your tragic energy. Mercy is every note of every octave of tragedy. It is the warp and whoop, knit and sateen. It is brick and mortar. It is flavor and texture. Tragedy is the merciful, powerful, holy, righteous working of a good God, a God we barely understand on this side of eternity. When we are in eternity, never will we say, I know all there is to know about God. Now what? Or, I already knew that about you, God. Anything else? Instead, we will be awed and blown away by the beauty of his fearful majesty every moment. There will not be a nanosecond of boredom in eternity with him. Naomi and we have received nothing that is not mercy from this great God. Responding to the meaning of Ruth 1. I have thought of a few obedient actions that seem to flow from the mysterious mercy of a loving, holy, and good God. First, self-examination in tragedy is good, but it is only good if we remember that El Shaddai is a good and merciful God while we are making our self-examination. Otherwise, we might begin to look for sin behind every experience of pain, persecution, suffering, hurt, disappointment, and calamity. Even if tragedy forces self-examination and then does reveal some sin to you, you and I cannot determine if any one tragedy relates to that specific sin or sins. Second, when it comes to walking with God, we must think in terms of an open-ended journey rather than a closed system with common sense outcomes. Closure is just something that is not promised. I'm sorry for those of you who like closure, but that's just not promised. If by closure you mean you get to have a neat bow on the package of life and everything gets to make sense according to our relative sensibilities. That's not promised. Yes, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is true. If you trust the Lord completely, he will direct your paths. Yes, Matthew 28, 20 is true. He will be with us always, even unto the end of the age. But neither Proverbs 3 or Matthew 28 promise us that we will be able to see the outcomes that we desire. They only promise the Lord's guidance and presence 
which should be enough for us. I'm trying to free us from bargaining with God or putting him in our indebtedness, domesticating him, trying to put a cuckold on him, trying to make him a controllable monarch. We must accept God as who he is and not make him in our own image. God is not that boss with all power who takes out a company's misfire on his employees. God is not that man or woman who kicks the dog and turns into a different person when inebriated because his or her work day was awful or because you had a bad day of chores or at school. God is not that dad who is trying to make you tougher by slapping you down any time you get near reaching a bar of success. God is not a capricious wizard, Superman's Mixoplex, John Picard's Q, or the tiger who needs to stay on his side of the boat. He is a good God through and through, a wonderful and merciful and kind and loving and gracious God. He is shrouded in mystery because we are so finite. But I'm sure that even before they died, Jacob, Job, Joseph, Naomi, and the whole cast of the people of God in Scripture would have affirmed that God is good in all things and at all times with no but comma to follow. Even Paul, who was beheaded, and John, who was exiled, clung to God as good in their imprisonment and exile. Paul says, all in Asia deserted me, but the Lord stood with me. And John ends the apocalypse by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Grace only comes from a good God. Hold on to that God when tragedy does not make sense. Third, even before this pandemic and social distancing are over, you should plan to be a faithful participant in church community in both smaller and intimate forms and in the whole church gathering. That flows from this, yes, let me explain why. The pandemic should reveal our need for proximate, vibrant, abiding community and make us long to have such as soon as we can love our neighbors by being proximate. Right now, to love means to be distant so that we do not inadvertently harm one another. The revelation of our need for community increases in our pain. We are not wired to suffer alone or face disappointment, tragedy, or despair alone. Now, this is where we must get over thoughts about people in the body of Christ leveraging our pains against us. That is something that should be left to the devices of those outside of Christ and outside of the church. In Christ and in his church and in churches, pain should find comfort, mercy, grace, steadfast companionship, prayer, words of encouragement, notes of hope, and humility on the part of each of us because even we who are without pain at the moment 
have an unknown date on the books in which the bottom drops out in some suffocating form. In here, your testimony of pain should not, dare I say, will not receive, I'm sorry, your life sucks. Go figure it out on your own and come back when you have pulled yourself together. Neither should it receive stares from people wondering what part of the story you left out and what sin you are not confessing. I really wish I could rid us of such graceless thinking. You know, that's like walking up to the cross on Good Friday and looking at Jesus and saying, now, I wonder what you really did. You would pass the Sanhedrin 401 exam with that attitude, but that would not look like the grace and mercy of one who leaves the 99 for the one sheep and rejoices. Of course, we know Naomi's life did not end here. Ruth meets Boaz, Boaz wears Ruth, and takes in Naomi as the near kinsman redeemer when that other schlep bows out of his responsibility. At the end of Naomi's life, it would be tempting for us to say, okay, I see, it all worked out now. Well, did it? Do you think Naomi never had pain again as a widow and as a mother who lost both of her sons? Really? Do you think she never wrestled with the fact that her grandson was not really her own son, even though she was totally happy? Yes, I know, I'm speculating. But what I am not speculating is that Naomi does not get another husband in this story, and she does not get to enjoy her two sons anymore, or even her other daughter-in-law. Yes, Naomi is blessed. Yes, Naomi gets a son. But the writer really is pointing us to the fact that Naomi's hope does not lie in a grandson named Obed, or a great-grandson named Jesse, or even a great-great-grandson named David. Even though Naomi never saw that being grandma to Obed would put her in the genealogy of Jesus, her hope is the same as ours. It is in a son. In the healing of the nations, a holy God first announced that son to Adam and Eve when the Lord told the serpent in the garden, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. With goodness, that son gets a cryptic mention when God tells Pharaoh to let go of his son so that Hosea could leave room for Matthew to say, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Lovingly, the Lord makes a covenant with David so that he would have a son who would always have right to the throne of Israel. And then mysteriously, 41 generations after Adam, 14 from Adam to David, including one with a Moabitess named Ruth, 14 from David to the deportation. You wonder how God was able to weave all this. And 14 more from the deportation to Mary and Joseph. That promised son was born and wrapped in swaddling cloths. That son was given because God so loved 
loves the world. That son took on our sins and defeated eternal death for us so that we could become sons of God. And just as mysteriously as he came to us in the history of redemption by God's good hand, so now mysteriously he rules in tragedy and triumph by God's good hand. Judge not the Lord by a feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind his frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Mighty are the works of your hand, O God. Everlastingly good, true and righteous, and filled up with mercy. At the point of pain, mystery and mercy are not our first thoughts. Yet you still cover us in them. And sometimes it takes years to get past what we see as unfair, what we experience as trauma, what leaves scars on us inside and outside. But God, we can't escape your goodness. You have more than proved that to us by sending Jesus. Give grace today, God, to each of us, to those most struggling the goodness of your mysterious striking down and calamity-giving hand. May your spirit sustain them and each of us. We bless you now, Lord, the goodness of all your grace. Help our unbelief. Give us strength to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.